You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 130. On today's show, I chat with Broadway costume designer Greg Barnes. We discuss royalties for designers of Broadway shows, agents versus lawyers for negotiating contracts, the importance of archiving your work as a designer, leading a simple life and a life energized by collaboration, designers spending their own money to improve their design, paying off a mortgage early without increasing your monthly payment, and royalties for shows by big corporations like the Rockettes and Disney. I will admit this interview strays from the financial focus quite a bit. Greg and I are both theater designers, and because of that, we get a bit long-winded. We discuss other theater designers, such as John Lee Beatty, Natasha Katz, and Tony Walton. Naturally, the interview got a little long, so today is only part one. In a couple weeks, I'll release the second part of the interview. So if you enjoy this episode and you want to hear part two sooner, you can become a patron of the show. Now, if you're currently a patron, it's already in your podcast feed. If you need to become a patron, you can do that at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now, without further ado, let's get to the show. You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth. Welcome, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Ethan Steimel, and today I welcome costume designer Greg Barnes to the show. Welcome, Greg. Hi, Ethan. How are you? Oh, walking along, singing a song. (laughs) Uh, We're recording this on January 19th, 2023. Greg, what is the theater news or the Broadway news that you're keeping track of today? Oh, my gosh. What what an opener. (laughs) I'm the worst person to ask such a question because I don't. I'm like not a chronic uh, follower of Broadway news. I'm I'm the same way, and that's why I try to ask the guest. Actually, right before uh, we started this, I got on Broadway World's chat board because something like it hot just opened, which I designed, and somebody had posted some horrible thing. Not horrible, I shouldn't say that, but is he losing it? So I thought, oh, why do I do it? Why do I try to keep up with Broadway news? Well, you know, me having never had a Broadway design, I think you're far from losing it. And I think your work is amazing. So whoever wrote that was probably an AI chat box. I'm going to be honest. (laughs) Or they're right. Nope. It was chat GPT. I'm sure of it. (laughs) All right. So another question you're going to love right off the bat here. Greg, for anybody who doesn't know who you are, what you are, because our listeners are live events all over the place, not necessarily just Broadway. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a costume designer. I've worked on Broadway, you know, which is a huge blessing, but I've worked uh, really all over the world. I've done a lot of events, like I just designed a, a show for Disney Tokyo Sea called uh, Believe Sea of Dreams. I've done the circus, Radio City Music Hall. I shows. Um, so I've, I've kind of had a little bit of experience with a lot of different forms of theater. That's basically what, what I've been doing for the past 43 years, even though I'm ever so much older than 43. Yeah, you look at least 44. Uh, so also, okay, Tokyo Disney Sea. What is the sea part? S-E-A? Uh, I think every Disney park, like Disneyland has a, 
adventure part and Disney uh, uh, World has Epcot and the Disneyland in, in Tokyo has a sister park, which touches it called Tokyo Sea. And it has a different sort of a thematic setup then, but it's essentially like going to a Disney park. And I will say everything I've seen that you have designed or everything you sort of just described are like large scale shows that sound like they have a lot of costumes. Are you pretty much just as your career has gone, are you working with multi-costume shows or do you ever do like single person plays? I was tell this story when I was a, a student, uh, an undergrad student, I was a lit major focused on linguistics. And so when my focus and interest started to shift over to design, my dream was to do all the classic plays, Shakespeare, Ibsen, Chekhov, all of them. Uh, but that never was my career. I don't, you know, it's it's funny, I guess your fate sort of finds you in a way. So yeah, right out of the gate, I've done very few just plays. I mean, you know, without it being a musical or some kind of event. It's interesting also, this is personal observation for me that you were a lit major because I archived all of John Lee Beatty's sketches for the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. So I spent a lot of time with him and his parents were English teachers. So he's very good with words or whatever. And I actually sort of see similar mannerisms between him and you. And I'm wondering if it has anything to do with that sort of... That part of your brain. I mean, I, I've worked with him a couple of times just at Encores. I adore him. I think he's really, you know, brilliant, brilliant artist. Yeah. Another similarity is that you both seem to be the life of the party. I'm just I'm just going to say it like you always have good stories. You always, like and it's very understated. You're both wildly understated and yet always the person everyone is listening to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. My, my inner dialogue is shut up, shut up. You're talking too much. <laughs> All right. OK, so I have a couple questions, but I'm mostly winging, the, winging this interview and I'll explain that later. But before we even get to the questions I like to ask, I just want to gossip for a couple minutes. So anybody who wants to talk about the art and the finance, just jump ahead 10 minutes here. <laughs> um, okay, so first off, you already mentioned Rockettes. So on Christmas Day of last year, you know, all of three weeks ago, I went and I saw the Rockettes. I didn't want to pay for a floor seat. And so I, of course, was up three flights up there in the balcony because I was early because it's a whole it's a crazy situation there where it's like a cruise ship where they are loading in the new audience while the old audience is still leaving the theater. So I was up on the third floor early waiting to go in and they have this nice little display that shows a little pieces of costume here and there. So I, of course, go over there and I'm like, oh, let's see. And then I see, oh, Greg Barnes, costume designer. And I say, oh, I'd love to have him on the podcast. Fast forward to it's now New Year's Eve and a lovely director I work with named Nathan Brewer invites me over for his New Year's Eve party. And lo and behold, Greg Barnes walks into the room. <laughs> And sure enough, later on, Nathan says, you know, Greg would be a great guest on the podcast. How funny. Uh, like a lot of these big, what, what I think of, I, I call them corporate jobs, which is maybe not the best way to categorize them. But you're more anonymous than you are working on Broadway or even in, in a regional theater. Because, you know, unless you purchase the very expensive, glossy program, there's no playbill. There's no... You don't even know, and, and and at Radio City, the show is not entirely me. I'm a very you know small part of it now, 
years ago, it was mostly me. And the funny thing about it was, oh my gosh, maybe about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I get a fan letter. And I only call it that because he called it that from Hal Prince. And I thought, what is happening? I've never even, you know, my path had not crossed Mr. Prince's. And they had gone to see the Christmas show. And his wife, Judy, had said, Hal, you've got to reach out to this costume designer. So it is funny how something that you do that you expect it to be kind of anonymous and that nobody knows that you designed the reindeer costume for the Rockettes or or whatever becomes almost a, a little touchstone in your life for some an event that had so much meaning and never ended up working with Hal. But, you know, the, just the fact that I got to sit with him because he invited me after he wrote this letter to come and, and have a chat. And it's funny how you have to do everything you do, not expecting that that kind of thing will happen. But when it does, it's a fair result of your passion and the work that you do. Yeah. And something like the Rockettes, which is such an institution that, I mean, there's like close to 8 billion people on the planet. And I suspect that, you know, I know we're USA centric, so we think everybody in the world knows the Rock- Rockettes. But OK, still, probably like 5 billion people have heard of the Rockettes. And, and when you're a part of something like that, yeah, there is that anonymous. But also when I went, the website is perfectly fine, but I wanted to know who the designers were. And that information is not really clear on the website. Like it's really hard. And I could not figure out who the lighting designer was. And so I ended up going to um, God Google and saying, can you help me out? And God Google wasn't able to help. And so I have a question for you. Is it David Agris? Hey, this is shocking, and I apologize to whoever the lighting designer is. But in the years where I was there full time, I know this is terrible. What? What? We're off to a bad start. Uh, Ken Billington did it. Ken Billington did it for many, 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 many years. And then when they passed that torch, I was sort of not in the stream with them, you know, uh, because they had moved on to a new director and a new design team. So I do not know who does it. It's terrible. Right. Okay. No, I think this is important for us to talk about because, you know, this, this goes, when I was archiving for John Lee Beatty, it was like, he was like, you know, I'm the only human being in existence who knows who the designers were on these shows that potentially were on Broadway. He made a very concerted effort to write down who the costume designer was, who the lighting, and we got it all because it's like in John Lee Beatty's archive is some of the only record anywhere of where some of these designers are. And it's nobody's fault. It's, it's just a thing about archiving and all that. But yeah, so I was trying to figure out. So I had Ken Billington on this show. I knew that he wasn't designing Rockettes anymore. So I knew that much, right? <laughs> um, but then the only other thing I could find was an article from 2019, pre-COVID. And it said, David Agris is the Rockettes designer for the past 13 years. So assuming David is still, it would now be now, what, 16 years or 15 years. So maybe some listener knows, David, are you listening? <laughs> and are you bitter about it? Or are you very pleasantly happy that we're discussing this? I bet that's correct. So anyways, so that's who I think it is. And, and, and the reason why this is important to me in particular is I was like, oh, just like I would like to have Greg Barnes on the show, I would like to have David on the show because the lighting was beautiful and I want to know how it happens and, of course, talk finance too. But I couldn't get to the bottom of it and you weren't even able to help me. So I don't want to reach out to him and say, hey, can you come talk about Rockettes? And then he says, oh, they fired me last year. 
exactly. Call John Lee Beatty. He'll know. <laughs> Amazing. Um, all right. So I'm not done gossiping yet. So the next thing is at New Year's Eve party, you were telling these stories and you told a very funny story that I remember. But what was important to me was you mentioned Chula Vista, California. All I have to say is Nicole, my partner, her uh, aunt and uncle live there. And so I'm just curious what your connection to Chula Vista is. Chula Vista. Well, I grew up in San Diego and we actually lived in El Cajon, which is about 20 minutes east. Chula Vista really butts up against the border. But all of my mom had a huge family of uh, 10 siblings. They didn't all live to adulthood. So 11 kids, nine, nine of them lived to adulthood and they all lived in Chula Vista. So we would go there for every you know, holiday. And, you know, when you come from a big family like that, it tends to be your social circle as well. Like, I don't even remember my parents hardly having friends. And it's a beautiful, you know, community. It's very diverse. There's a lot of, uh, of course, Hispanic population. And and in fact, my uncle Bob, (laughs) who was a principal at Hilltop High School in Chula Vista, has the stadium there named after him. So, that that's a little family point of pride. That's very cool. So so then when did you move to New York? So I came to New York in 1980 to go to NYU. And I had done my linguistic career, that part of my education at San Diego State University. And I graduated from there in 1978. But when I told my folks that I thought I might come to New York to go to NYU, they said, uh, you know, you've got to make a living. Why don't you get your California state teaching credentials? So I ended up spending that year and a half getting my credential and then designing everything I could, you know, at community colleges and small, very tiny regional theaters just to practice because I had come to it very late. So just, just to, in preparation for coming to NYU. And then you came here? To the design department, studied, the, got an MFA in costume design and stayed here and was wildly successful have been wildly successful well yeah i mean part of my economic story if you want to get into this now is if if, if, when i went to interview for nyu i didn't come from a wealthy family and and we and i had gone to california state schools so i think my entire undergrad education cost about six hundred dollars because i went to a community college to the state college was like a hundred dollars a semester, something crazy. So when I went to interview at NYU, I said, um, I don't know anything about applying for grants, but I I can I have been saving money. So I have the first year covered, but do you think that there might be a chance that I could get some scholarship? And they it was a gentleman's promise. They didn't promise it to me, but it was understood that there was a good chance in my second year, if I did well, that I could get a graduate assistantship at NYU, which would cover your tuition and your, uh, had a small stipend. During the first year, I had gone down to the undergraduate department and designed a show, uh, which you were not supposed to do. It was, it was verboten, <laughs> forbidden, but I was have kind of moved around the shadows and not really done what I'm supposed to do. So I had done this little show. So at the end of the year, I went and had a meeting with the head of the department. And and he uh, informed me that they did not have a place for me, that there there was one opening and they were giving it to somebody else. So I said, oh man, there's no way I can come back. 
regrets all around, but there was no solution. So anyway, I went over to the undergraduate department, which was in a completely different building. I said, you know, thank you so much. I had, it was a highlight of my year working with you. And they said, oh, that's crazy. We don't have graduate assistantships, but we think we could create one for you. So they did. And so I ended up having, for the next two years, I had this support that I needed. And then when I graduated, they turned that graduate assistantship into a part-time staff position. So I ended up teaching at NYU from 1983 until I think it was 2001. Yeah, uh, yeah, 2002, right after the the trade towers were hit. It was uh, such a gift because I had benefits and... But guess what the fee was? For, for the assistantship? Uh, okay, I'm just going to say $400 a month. Ah, well, you're pretty close. It was $6,000 a year to run this costume shop. Eventually, they had the students design the shows. But if it, when I came into this, it was just me. And there was no staff, no crew, nothing. And at that time, I had a choice I was just graduating from with my MFA and I had two offers to be a union sketch artist or this offer to make $6,000 a year and to be master of my own fate. And I thought, I sat down and had a very serious chat with myself and I, I thought, you know, it's, it's crazy. I could make, I could be an assistant and have union benefits and all of these things but if I take this other thing, I'll have a shop where I can work out of to do all these off-off-Broadway things, which other people don't have. They're doing it in their living room. So I took that road, took that path. Maybe my eventual kind of emergence as a designer might have happened quicker if I had become, you know, you never know. When I think about my life, I think it was the most important decision I made was to take that very low-paying job. So it was as poor as I ever was, but it afforded me so many things that were not about money, where money wasn't the deciding factor. And I, just to clarify, to make sure I'm following it right, that was for the, your last two years, or that was when you got out? I had a graduate assistantship for the last two years, and then this transition happened when I got out. Got it. For the, the same amount of money? No, no, no. As a student, I just had tuition waiver. Oh, I see what you're saying. Was the stipend four hundred dollars a month? Though the stipend was about two hundred and fifty dollars a month. No, the fee the fee for a full time job was six thousand a year. Okay, and just for perspective for for me, because the reason I said four hundred was in I was in grad school in twenty ten. The assistantship, which I thought was pretty good, uh, was eight hundred dollars. So I just halved that as my guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it was enough in the early eighties to sort of kind of feed yourself. How, uh, just for context, how much was your rent? Okay, well, this is another miracle. I stayed in the dorm while I was in school. So so the dorm was paid. Uh, I took out a loan, and my parents helped me a little bit on that. But when I got out, I got an apartment on 13th Street, which was the most terrible six-floor walk-up. I shared it with uh, another NYU student. And I think we were paying each paying $600 a month. So it was a big bite out of $6,000. It was essentially what I was making. Except, except you were losing money. Exactly. A friend of mine came to visit me who lived in Astoria, and she said to me, 
after looking around, seeing the stairwell, seeing the apartment, she said, do your parents know where you're living? And I said, no, and don't tell them. It's, this is all I can manage. And she had her landlord had an, uh, an apartment that had been vacant because they were using it for a storage. And she said, I think they will give it to you really, really cheap if you can live with their stuff. And of course, I just got out of school. I had nothing. So I went out there. I met with the family. Uh, the family owned the building. And they lived there as well. And they offered me a two-bedroom apartment uh, in Long Island City for $232 a month. Amazing. So I could live there. I had a studio because I had a second bedroom. Even though I made so little money in that first decade of my time in New York, I could save money because it was only $232 a month. And I think 10 years later, it was probably $262. They didn't, you know, they didn't raise it that much. I appreciate this story because everybody has this one like it. I look at successful designers and there's so many factors that go into who gets a break, who does well. And of course, talent, hard work, that all plays a part into it. But there is this like dirty secret of finance. Very often when you see it, somebody who's done several Broadway shows, and this is like a broad generalization, of course, they come in all shapes and sizes. You find out a backstory of like, how they, they had a really good housing situation, or maybe they're from, from the area, or there's all these things that it's not like, you can't just say, oh, well, that's where they're successful because they were only paying $232 for rent for 10 years. But it's like everybody who survives in this business, regardless of how successful you are, it's this cobbled together like way of you got a break on this or you worked out a deal here. And so I love hearing this story because it's like, yeah, how do you survive when you're doing off off Broadway? Like even now when I moved here, it was like, okay, you can go to Astoria or you can go to Inwood. And that's how, if you want to be close commuting, that's where you can afford to do it. So that's where everyone has like found their housing fixes. Because I've been here so long now, I've watched generations of incredibly talented, maybe the most talented people, maybe the hardest working people. But this twist of fate didn't somehow come together because it is a perfect storm to be able to be a designer because you have to have good health. You can't get yourself into financial straits because if you do, you always have to chase the money as opposed to the art of what you want to do. So yeah, it's, it's really true. It's like a, it is a perfect storm and fate plays many hands as you're going you know, through it. I'm loving this conversation. I actually want to go back and ask my icebreaker questions. <laughs> and and just, just because I'm curious, even though I think I know the answers, but uh, your creative personality, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience member? Oh, wow. Well, I did not grow up in a theater family. I grew up in a sporty family. You know, we were, they were little leaguers and uh, go to see the Chargers or the Padres. And I had no interest in any of that. I was always begging my parents to take me whenever a, uh, an ice show or the circus would come to town and they, and they would take me because I think it was at the sports arena. <laughs> there was a connection. And I remember we went to see a thing called Disney on Parade. It was not a, an ice show. It was a dance show, but it was in the arena. You know how Disney always has those very distinctive, the way they orchestrate things. And it's very rousing. It plays to every cheap emotional, you know, string you have. Uh, we went in and the, there was a castle, but it was just pipes. It was very gray. It looked like a battleship. 
And when the lights came down and the overture started and they lit that castle and it became this magical fairy tale vista, my heart, I thought it's going to leap out of my eight-year-old chest and I'm going to, this is some experience that I, it's even hard to, but you can imagine. So I love whenever I'm part of something, it doesn't actually matter what the thing is, but where you get that kind of, it's like a, it's like a sacred space, anything that can bring you that much joy. I think you can find it at, you know, Scooby-Doo Live. I think you can find it at the band's visit on Broadway. I think you can find it in a one-person show. I remember when I saw Billy Elliot, I saw the invited dress rehearsal because my friend Terry Purcell was the wardrobe supervisor. And in the second act, the little Billy that I saw was dancing. And all of a sudden, I just, it, I thought, what if you were the parent of this child who is so extraordinary, so gifted, so graceful? As a child myself, who couldn't even tie my shoes without falling over and, you know, cutting my knee, to see somebody in a state of grace. And I got that feeling. So it's not, I'm not really answering the question because it's really everything. But it's about the excellence, I think, of the evening. And I carry that into my decision making as a designer. You know, I designed Aladdin on Broadway. And, you know, Disney is, to their credit, uh, Disney Theatrical, they don't want you to just stamp out the animated film on stage. You're encouraged to really look at the information from every angle and to make it distinctly for its own form to be this musical on Broadway. And so we talked, to, I mean, it was years and years and years of development, but I kept thinking, whatever happens, no matter where we go, when Jasmine hits the deck and Aladdin, I want the eight-year-old in the audience to have that rush, that feeling of just pure joy. It's like greeting an old friend uh, that's part of your history. And adults too, hopefully. Taking a break from the interview to mention our Patreon page. Now the perks of being a patron are that you get a private podcast feed with all the bonus materials and early releases of each episode, including part two of today's interview. Now patrons, in addition to keeping this show running, are helping Artistic Finance give monthly support to more than 30 other freelancers with side hustles, and that's including a fellow designer, Porsche McGovern, we recently upped our contribution to the work they're doing, gathering and publishing demographic statistics of who designs in Lort Theaters. Lort Theaters are the big regional theaters in the USA. That is a massive project and they have undertaken it for several years and are continuing on. If you want to help me produce this show and also help me give to other artists who are doing the good work, I would absolutely love to have your support. Along the way, we will get our fellow artists to invest for themselves and their future. To sign up, visit patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now, back to the show. I, I absolutely love that. And also, you mentioned the band's visit. And I will just say, seeing the band's visit for me was like the most magical, beautiful thing I have ever seen in a show that I will remember forever. 
And I can't exactly explain why I connected to it or loved it so much, but I just love that you use that as one of those examples. Well, you know, when I saw the men's visit, I went because my my trainer, Nicholas Look, he brought me a, bought me a ticket as a Christmas present. And it was around the time, you know, the character that was waiting for the phone call at the payphone. I started crying, but not like weeping, just like wet, just like a wet face. And exactly as you described, I couldn't really tell you why I was crying. And then, and it didn't stop. And I just had that feeling like it wasn't a rush. It was just a sacred space kind of feeling. I've never seen anything on Broadway that touched my experience at the band's visit. Amazing. Because the people I went with, I walked out and I said, this is amazing. And they said, this is a very boring show, Ethan. (laughs) Right? Yeah. No, it's crazy. When I was a kid, right before I came here, uh, Angela Lansbury and George Hearn were doing Sweeney Todd at the Amundsen. Of course, the album had come out and I had played it till it was, you know, no longer, there weren't grooves left in the album. I love Sweeney Todd so much. And many years later, I got to do it with George Hearn at the Paper Mill Playhouse. And it just so happened that the night that I went to see it, drove up from San Diego to L.A., a bunch of my aunts were going on, uh, I guess it was a church trip, which is a weird, they probably didn't even know what the show was because it's an odd kind of theme for a church group. So I'm with a couple of friends. We're down in the orchestra and my aunts are all up in the mez. And we are having a, a, an experience like I had at the band's visit, like, you know, just transported to some other plane. And at the intermission, my aunt uh, Jean, I, she's passed, so she won't mind my saying, but she was like, what the hell is going on? And I said, what do you mean what is going on? I mean, a, a work of genius is going on. And so it is funny how, you know, not, we don't all uh, experience these things the same. All right. So I guess we'll get back to finance. So your financial personality here, are you good or bad with money? I think I'm very good with money. Money to me is not a real tangible thing, which is which you would presume then that you that that says you're bad with money. But now that I'm at this age and I've had two uh, two pretty sizable hits, uh, Kinky Boots and and uh, Aladdin, which have built a kind of security cushion uh, for me. Um, I could buy a country house or buy a whatever I want. Not whatever I want, but, and I don't live, there's nothing I want. (laughs) That I just live my life the way I always lived it when I was making $6,000 a year. Maybe that's, people that know me would be like, you're delusional. But, um, so yeah, I don't, uh, I don't live beyond my means. I, I don't, when I bought my apartment, um, I needed a lot of work done. And I had a 30-year mortgage, and I swore I swore to myself, you're not going to do that work until the mortgage is paid off, because I didn't want to be in debt. I ended up paying the mortgage off in seven years, even though it was a 30-year loan. And then I waited. Uh, then I bought another apartment, which is the apartment I'm sitting in, which is connected to my apartment, um, to work out of. And then when I paid that off, I finally started to renovate the apartment. So, you know, it's just, I guess it's a, 
I guess that's being good with money. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And actually, you triggered a thought in my brain, which was you were talking about a big show or thing that you're anonymous on. So I had the actor Ken Page on the show, and he was in the original Broadway version of Cats. And he mentioned that. He said, you know, I'm a cat in the show, and nobody really remembers. So Ken Page was in that show because it's such an institution and it's, you know, there's anonymity in there. But he mentioned he had a choice about buying an apartment. And I think what happened was he decided he didn't want that 30 year. He didn't want that. And so he continued renting. And then I think he moved. But it's that same. That's a huge decision. And you took on that 30 year. And I know people who get mortgages, there's always that thing of do I do 30 years or 15 years to save money on the interest. And it seems to me like the general consensus is get that 30 year loan because you can do what uh, Greg Barnes did and you can pay it off early. And, but you're not forced to, but you can. Here's my little unofficial, and, and you know what's interesting? Uh, uh, the advice that I was getting from everybody was don't pay it off. It's such a great tax write-off. And I was like, I don't think I, I don't know. I don't know from tax write-off. I just know that I don't want to pay this. I don't want to, for one thing, spend three times what I paid for this to a bank. So what I did was, at that time, when I bought the apartment next door, especially my, where I live, they would every month they would send you a coupon to write the check. And you would get it about every three weeks because they would want to get it to you a little early so that you would be on time with the payment. And I made it after the first year. I paid. Uh, I paid my monthly what I, what was due, and then I saw the statement, and it was like you know, against the principal, uh, nothing goose egg. Against the interest, everything that I had paid, and I thought, oh no, 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 no. We're gonna somehow we're gonna do this. So I started paying when that three week time frame came i would write it that day send it off then the next one would be a week early because i had sent off the old coupon so in a month or in 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 four months i was a month ahead because i had cheated them by a week so just by doing that simple thing i cut years off of that mortgage and then when i I did a, a job for the Christmas show, and uh, those we can talk about how the pay structure on those works. But they're they're a buyout, so you just get one lump sum, but it's a significant amount of money. Sometimes it's three times what you'd make on a Broadway show, but you're not going to get royalties. You just get one one fee. Uh, so when those things would come around, after I paid the taxes and my agent. And my accountant, I would say anything that's left, if I don't need it, put it against this mortgage. So that's kind of how I got. I don't like to be under the, you know. Which I think a lot of people in the entertainment industry, or at least freelancers, are this way where we our brains work like, well, who cares about whether I can save money on taxes by holding this debt? I am a freelancer and I don't want any debt. Like. Also, what you're describing with the coupons and paying it off early is compound interest, or I guess reverse compound interest. The earlier you pay it off, then the more money you're saying just on the interest and the principal, etc. I think just by doing that, without even without giving a single extra cent, I think I cut eight years off that loan, off the thirty years, just by doing like, and that was only in seven years because I paid it off 
eventually in seven years. And I remember listening to some really smart financial person explaining, I think it might have been David Bach in The Millionaire Next Door or something. He was saying that if you make one extra payment, like at the end of the year, versus if you pay that same amount off like a little bit every month, that it's the same deal. But somehow if you, especially if you're getting it off the principal in small amounts every month, you're better off than paying it at the end of the year because of that compound interest. So that same thing of when the coupon comes in, pay it right then and there, you're in theory cutting 30 days off the principal versus waiting that extra 30 days, which is sort of insignificant, but it's not insignificant because of compounding. Exactly, exactly. All right, so now I want to shift into, you mentioned those holiday shows and the Broadway royalties, and we actually honestly have not really discussed Broadway royalties and how that works, but maybe you can share from your experience. I guess I want to talk about Aladdin and Kinky Boots and then those holiday shows and then anything else you think is important. So I'm just going to start with, I'm just not going to skirt the issue, and I'm just going to ask about Aladdin first, which is, I mean, how has that been uh, financially for you and how does it work? Uh, Because I've never designed on Broadway. I've never gotten any royalty or additional weekly compensation ever, period. That's how my career is going. So I just genuinely don't actually know how it works. So I guess Aladdin's a good one because Disney is a parent company. So I'll let you I'll let you talk now. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you negotiate your contract there and it's usually favored nations, which is a little bit of a not it's never really favored nations, but that's I you know, I can't because I don't know how they work that out. But so you get a fee and then you get you you get you arrange up front through your lawyer a, the weekly and you get a, a small uh, amount of money every week that the show's running until you don't. Because then they'll, you know, when the shows aren't doing well, they will collectively ask all of the people that are sharing in this profit, not profit yet, the sharing in this weekly situation to waive the fee. That happens most of the time. So most of the time, you get a fee and you get a certain amount of money and until you don't. And that is agreed upon to keep the show running. Where you stand to make money is when the show, the initial investment has recouped, you then become a share holder. So if the show makes you know a million dollars in a week, however that's divvied up, they call it the it's it, you get a you get a point, or well, we designers get a part of a point. So you're going to get that percentage of the profit. So it's really only uh, shows that recoup that you really uh, have any kind of financial potential for a big, you know, a, a nice bonus. So when I did my first Broadway show, the this is a, was kind of an interesting thing. The set designer, it was a sideshow. This was in 1997. And the the uh, set designer was Robin Wagner, and Robin and that collective that had worked with Michael Bennett. And again, this is just my understanding. Somebody may say he is so not right about this, but the legend is that Theoni, the Aldridge, Theron Musser, and Robin did a lot to restructure how how designers were perceived in the financial part of the equation. I think before them, maybe it was just uh, a fee. Yeah, I mean, working with John Lee Beatty, who um, has had a long career, 
he made comments to me. He would say, oh, so-and-so did so many Broadway shows, but that was before designers made money on Broadway. And and he has had such a long career that I guess he was there for 30 years, not making additional money. And then that transition that you're talking about then was able to afford him quite a lot of royalties. It confirms kind of the story that I heard. And I think that Chorus Line might have been, so that was in 1974. I think that that might have been one of the catalysts for it, because of course it was a simple show to produce in a way that, I mean, the, the public may say no, but you know, it's a uh, one, two costume event, one space, one set, no automation. So it made, it made a lot of money. And then because of the, it wasn't Phantom of the Opera. So, so the money, it was fertile. So I don't know that that's connected, but, but somewhere along the line that, changed and designers started to share in the profits so on my very first broadway show with no credits i had no awards i had no you know bio except for what i had done regionally and then these spectaculars was 1200 a week and i just assumed that's what people got this was in 1997 then the next broadway show i did was flower drum song also with robin and it was a my memory is that it was about the same. But as the years went on and I started to do more and more work on Broadway, my weekly all of a sudden was like 550, 750 in that range. So I think when I started, I benefited from being like hanging in a way on Robin's coattails that I got a favored nation's response to somebody who was a legend, you know. So while the show is running, if it's doing well, you're getting somewhere between, say, 600 and 1200 a week as a royalty. Once it flips and the, the initial investment is paid off, it just depends on, on the how much the show is earning. But you share a point, which is this is an interesting thing. Like, and again, I'm just this is just me blabbing. And but I, I assume that a director, a choreographer, certainly the playwright, the the composer, if it's a musical, the lyricist, they all have a point or some points. The designers traditionally split a point. And on my, uh, this happened, I'm not going to tell you the show just because I don't want to, if that's okay, but a job came along after um, Flower Drum Song. And I would literally, I would say I would have killed my mom to do the job. I mean, I wouldn't really have, but I would have thought about it. Because it was the kind of show where I knew that the design was going to be noticed. You know, sometimes our job is to be quiet and to just serve the piece. We're not asked to tap dance on our own. But in this case, I knew the show, a lot of the humor is is based on visual things. Or when they came to me with the deal, they said, Greg is the least experienced Broadway presence on the design team, which was true. And so we have to give him less of a point than the other two will. They're still going to share a point, but I'm not going to get 33.3% of that. I'm going to get something less. It's a crossroads, right? Because I thought this isn't fair. I'm going to, no matter what my resume says, I'm going to spend two years on this probably. And the lighting designer, not to denigrate at all what a lighting designer does, I might have the hugest, greatest respect, but it's a concentrated kind of 
effort. It's a much smaller, and just in terms of hours, it's it's smaller. And I said, I can't in good faith take this. I'm going to have to pass. And they then said, we'll honor your, we'll split this up evenly. That impulse to take care of yourself, know what is, you know, sometimes you do a job knowing you're going to lose money because you want to do it and it's going to feed your soul. But sometimes when it's presented in that kind of language, you think, no, it's just an injustice. So, and I'm not a great campaigner. I'm a terrible, uh, you know, I just kind of go along usually. And it felt good. It felt good to know that, you know, I could state my case and that it was answered respectfully. And I feel like it was important for me to hear, feel like I was heard. That's amazing. And I love you saying, I'm going to keep this anonymous, if you don't mind, because so many people just don't tell the story instead of doing it that way. So I'm so glad to have the story, regardless of what show it was, because frankly, it doesn't matter unless it was Hamilton. Was it Hamilton? <laughs> and then I also love that perspective of the costume designer saying, well, the line designer's not going to work on it as for as long as I am, because I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting in tech and there's no set designer and there's no costume designer and me and the sound designer there, projections designer, and I'm thinking, what the heck? These people don't show up like this is so not cool. Here I am doing the 16 hour days. I appreciate hearing the different perspective because it's like here all this resentment builds in me. And now now in the future, I'm going to say, you know what? Greg Barnes has the reverse resent resentment. We both need to ch chill here. I thought about exactly what you're saying on Some Like It Hot because Natasha Katz, you know, and she's usually doing so many things at the same time. But, you know, there she was. You know, if we got out at one in the morning, she was back there at the crack of dawn. And, you know, especially when you get older, that's not easy. I mean, not. I'm not saying she's older. She's like a one of my favorite young people on the planet. But uh, well, that that's actually that's actually just slightly a segue of me saying Natasha Katz has a, a, an amazing story about being pregnant and giving birth. I am now an expecting father. I am now thinking, you know what? It would be great to get a bunch of designers together and talk about their pregnancy story and how they survived and how they handled it. So maybe you can be my introduction to Natasha to sort of. I mean, that's a weird ask for me to be like, Natasha, will you come talk about your pregnancy and the financial situation of it? <laughs> oh, my God. I love her so much. She's and she's so well spoken. She'll give you a very interesting story. All right. So so what you're talking about with points about how designers um, handle points. Now, I will say that um, there's a USA 829 designers Facebook group. I remember there was once a discussion that I didn't need to be a part of because I've never had additional weekly compensation. Um, but it was saying, somebody was saying, hey, they're asking me to waive my fee or my weekly because the show isn't. And, and basically the feedback was, well, you make sure that everybody is not getting their weekly. Like you be sure of that because, and then somebody broke it down how you were saying directors and choreographers have more of a point or get their own point. And somebody made the point that said, designers are sharing a point or getting a very small amount. You are the least of the problems. Make sure the people who are getting a bigger point are waiving theirs because that's going to save the production more money if we're looking at it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a show uh, and it was with a, a community of creative team that I love and have worked with a thousand times since. And it was an amazing experience. But it was not, the show was not an enormous uh, success on Broadway. It didn't recoup. Uh, we all waived our royalty at a certain point. 
so when the national tour happened, we were called to the producer's home and uh, the producer said, unless everybody agrees to, because you've negotiated all of these things with a lawyer previous to the, to the beginning of the Broadway pro- process, the producer said, unless everybody agrees to take half of what we've agreed upon, we can't do the tour because we weren't a hit and we can't guarantee the the presenters, I think they called it, uh, that they will make their money back. So, of course, we all collectively agreed to do that because, you know, something is better than nothing. Even as long as you've got a show running, in a way, it's the best commercial for you because people are seeing your work. We all agreed. The, the expectation was that it was, I think they thought it would take two years for the show to recoup. Well, when it went out, because of many, many circumstances, it was an enormous success on the road and it recouped in six months. None of us thought, I guess you just presume that if the thing has recouped, we will revert to the original financial plan. But no, we all made half of what we were had negotiated to make. So there's a lot of um you know, you have to kind of be on your toes a little bit about ask the right questions. What you said is so apt. Make sure that it's not just, you know, the design team that is uh, agreeing to this condition. You know, we all want to be a fair player and we all want the show to run. I mean, it's so many people's career lives and financial lives are are enhanced when a show is running. A lot of people out of work if there's, if there's no show. So there's every reason except to compromise, except that we don't make that much to start with traditionally. You know, it's unfortunate for you, good for the producers, but it's also like it's nobody's fault. I mean, sort of the producers you want to blame a little bit um, for working that out. Because I'm thinking, like, how do you prevent this in the future? Like, you know, because you, you say, well, okay, we agree to it, but if it recoups in X amount of time, but then I go into conspiracy theory and I'm like, well, they control money and therefore they could make it recoup, start recouping the day after that contract because <laughs> there's ways to move the budget around and reserves and all that. So I don't have a solution here. Also, your history as an artist, but also as a financial entity, as your own corporation is the experience. You know, if now I know to ask that question, it's never happened again that that phenomenon has happened. Um, but I, but it's on, but it's now it's part of my pool of knowledge. Another thing that that happened, if I, if I can tell another anecdote, I worked on a again show unnamed, but it began in Los Angeles um, at the Amundsen, and the way they set up the fee was the regional fee, and then if it moved to Broadway, you got the rest of the money. Then the regional fee. Uh, I'm going to say it was like $4,500 and the Broadway fee would have been, you know, whatever, 40,000. I can't remember exactly, but that's, you know, Broadway fees for me anyway, are kind of in that range. So we open. so you spend two and a half years of your life and you really a lot of your own money developing this design and making this thing happen. And then it doesn't come in. So at the end of, and it's not like I've just, the, like the, the, the regional theater did not pro- 
they produced partly, they were a partnership of, in the producing team, but all the work was done here in New York. When we got there, there wasn't there, the, the Center Theater Group's costume shop, maybe they did do some notes for us, but very minimal. So we've delivered this big ass musical and I've spent years on it. And financially, it's ridiculous. No other business would work under that, under that, that paradigm or what do you that? But I always look at it like, would I train trade the experience? No, I would do it again in a heartbeat. If I even if I knew that the end of it was going to be not about money, because I learned so much, I got to work on this amazing show you know, work with these incredible other artists, other artisans that work in my part of the business. Um, you know, it was a it was a bucket list experience. It just wasn't a bucket list financial experience. Yeah. And just so I understand, you spent all this time working for the regional theater fee, building it, then transferred it to Broadway. It never transferred. The producers determined that it was not going to work here. Whereas usually, like if like if you did, like we started Dirty Rotten Scoundrels at the Old Globe Theater, but we knew that it was coming to into the Imperial. We had the dates. So it was produced to move. But sometimes uh, you do a musical, also at the Old Globe Theater, I've done them, where, but in, in that scenario, the Old Globe has a costume shop that is doing all of the work. You are doing traditionally what you do, which is designing it and resourcing it and doing the fabric and doing the fittings and overseeing all the finances. But you don't actually have to find a staff of people to make the clothes. That's it for this week's episode. I don't have any takeaways. Those are going to come with the second part of this interview, which will be broadcast in two weeks. Next week will be our first book club meeting. Now, we'll be meeting on Sunday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. New York, and 5 p.m. London. If you would like to attend the live meetup, please sign up on our website and we will send you that Zoom link. This week, we're having the author of the book in attendance, which is wildly exciting. Now, you don't need to have read the book, but you do have one more week in which you can get it in. Nicole has already finished it. I'm not quite halfway through the book, and frankly, I have two, yes, two texts to get through before Sunday, so... I'm a little worried that I might not finish it in time. But regardless, the meeting's going to be great. Find all the details about Book Club at artisticfinance.com. Now, if you want to hear the second half of the interview with Greg Barnes, that is available to patrons. Now, there's a link to our Patreon page in the show notes or on our website. You can join for $3 a month and help me keep this show going and keep these public conversations happening. While the guests are going out of their way to support our mission of financial education for freelancers, you, the patrons, are going out of your way to support me and ensure this show keeps going. One last thing before we go. To the person who left us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, thank you. The review was titled, Non-Judgmental Real Money Talk and Advice. Open and honest conversations about finance. It's never too late to get back on financial track. Thank you for that review. It gives validation to the show, to people who stumble across it. And yet somehow I'm still two reviews behind the Light Talk podcast. So if you're listening and you have the capability to give a rating and review either on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, 
please do, and thank you so much in advance. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.